We're working our way through the book of Genesis, and now we're in chapter 19. And I want to really pick up where we left off last week. For those of you who are here last week, you know that we had Dr. John Whitaker share with us uh, from a, a message from the book of Acts, and really left with one really important question. As I listened to that sermon, uh, it was a question that kind of stood out to me and and then followed me throughout the week. And I know in speaking to many of you who were at the service, it was an inspiring question with the examples that were shared. And I want to reshare it with you and then really try to answer the question again through the lens of a very challenging situation. The question was this, what what would it look like for you and I to live for whatever is best for the gospel? To not just be Christ-centered, but to also be cross-centered. And the idea being that God is going to call us to be faithful to him in circumstances that will require us to really take a stand, make a sacrifice, to love our neighbor, to love our enemy, in sometimes ways that cost us our own things and possessions and bits of our life that we really like. And so the whole question is, are are we so in love with God? Are we so faithful to the call of God in our lives that we would live in whatever way we had to for the call, for the gospel, for our hope in eternity, regardless of what it costs us in this temporary life? And I was inspired to answer yes in all circumstances. And then as I was... Uh, looking at the word and preparing for this week, I realized that uh, Tom Velasco passed the baton of Genesis uh, in Genesis chapter 19. And if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, you know that Genesis is full of stories that teach us that the Bible is really kind of an R-rated book, isn't it? There's so much of us that want the Bible and Christianity and following God to be easy in a sense. And we don't have a title for this series that we're going through other than the book of Genesis. But if we did have a title, it might be appropriately titled, Does the Bible Really Say That? (laughs) And there's going to be stories that we read today that we can pause and say, Does the Bible really say that? And then as you continue to read the Bible, you realize that it's not comfortable and it's not easy. And there's all sorts of verses and stories and commands and exhortations that make you feel very uncomfortable. And the version of Christianity that comes to you in a meme or in a poster on a social media platform or in a message that tames everything down to something that you can easily digest with a smile maybe isn't really the Bible. (laughs) Because what we find in this story especially in answering the question, would we do anything for the gospel? Is we find another story that makes you feel uncomfortable. It makes you wonder about how easy it is to really live this out. And so for those of you who don't know Genesis chapter 19, and a refresher for all of us, it can really be summed up in three words, two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And as I was past the baton of the the journey in the book, I thought, Really? Do we really need on a Sunday morning in the spring of Idaho to think about God's judgment, God's wrath, and the wickedness of humanity? I mean, the reality is the Bible comes to you in ways that you sometimes don't like, but it doesn't matter if you like it or not. What matters is, are you willing to receive it and really allow the Spirit of God to use his word to shape you? 
to shift you. Because if you're already in the shape and the direction and the momentum that you want, then you're dismissed. You don't need the Bible to be who you are right now. But you do need the Bible to be who God wants you to be. And so for the purposes of this study, we're going to read through uh, as an overview the first 29 verses. And as we read through them, we're going to then come back. And I want you to journey with me as we study this through the lens of a couple of different things. First, we're going to look at three temptations that this city and the story of its destruction will unfold. And these are three temptations that I do not believe live simply in ancient times in a, in a wicked and evil city that's no longer on the map. We're going to look at three temptations, then we're going to look at two failures. As the temptations unfold, why is it that sometimes they overtake us? And then we're going to look at one solution. So three temptations, two failures, and one solution given to us through this incredible story that as we read it can really be broken down into two acts. And that is the city of darkness and the city of light or the God of light. Because really this is a story about Sodom and its destruction that will unfold in a, a story about what happens at night and then a story about what happens during the day. So we start now in the, the dawn of the night in verse 1. It says, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. So just a little bit of setup. We were first introduced to Lot as a, a travel companion and the nephew of Abram, and he is now living in Sodom, a place that he chose for himself because as his life was unfolding, God blessed him with a lot of riches, and it was re required that he and Abram part ways. And so he chose for himself Lot, and we are introduced also to two angels that we know from previous chapters are coming to take a survey of this wicked city that is continually crying out to God for justice. So he sends two angels into the city and they greet Lot who is living there. And in verse 2 it says, He said to them, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And, he, and they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. So Lot greets them, and he gives them a, a very common act of courtesy for ancient times, that when there are strangers that you're introduced to or travelers of your city, that it's customary to bring them into your house to care for them, to make sure that they rest well, and then they continue on the journey. They say that they would not take him up on the offer, that they would just rather sleep out in the open square. At the part of the story that I really appreciate about ancient times is that you used to just apparently go from place to place and be uh, sleeping anywhere out in open squares. Uh, but we find in Lot's response to them, he urges them. He says to them in verse 3, he, is, it, he insisted strongly, so they turned in with him and entered his house, and then they, he made a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So the inference here is that we are now aware that Lot is fully aware of the depravity of the city. It's not safe for you to sleep outside. You really do need to come into my house because this is not the kind of city that treats strangers out in the open well. And we'll find out more as the story unfolds. So they take him up on the offer. They go in, they eat. And as the night is darkening, it says in verse four, but before they lay down, 
the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. Not a useless bit of information, and we'll come to this later, but what's being communicated is that everyone in the city who's got word that there's newcomers, young and old, every quarter, all the men, they have some evil intentions that are about to unfold. And it's important that we realize that the depravity of the city is all-encompassing. And it says in verse 5, And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. In other words, we want to have sex with them. We want to, we want to have a physical interaction, a carnal, fleshly night of pleasure with these people. And Lot went out to them in a, in, in a way to, to fend them off. It says that he went out through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. Please, this is my responsibility. These men need to stay safe. Will you please curb your intentions, curb your desire to be with these guys? And it says in verse 7, or verse 8, so now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let them bring them out to you, and you may do them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And here we can now pause and appropriately say, does the Bible really say that? <laughs> we are introduced to a character that will later be called a righteous player in the narrative of God. Righteous lot will be spared. And in his version of, uh, of protection of the host of the house, or the guest of, of, of the house that he's hosting, he offers his daughters. The Bible does really say that. This, this is not being uplifted as a heroic act or a righteous act in and of itself, or even as an example, but as an example of the depravity, even of Lot, that he would be so bent on curbing their appetite that he would offer them his virgin daughters. Let's keep reading. And they said, stand back. And they said, the, the one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. So the scene shifts slightly. The angels that are sent, the messengers of the Lord, are now calling the angry and, and, and lustful mob to stand back, to which the mob says, they came here, and now they're acting as our judge. So we're going to do worse with you than we were going to do with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. This is the collision of darkness. This is the, the overwhelming darkness of the city that has an unquenchable thirst, an appetite for sin that cannot be stopped. In fact, we'll see a picture of that because it says the angels or the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them, and they shut the door. This is a picture and a preview of the angels' desire to do whatever it takes to spare Lot or to put Lot under the protection of mercy. And so they pull Lot into the house and then it says in verse 11, they struck the men who were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. This is a physical blindness, also a picture of spiritual blindness or the depravity of the soul that is completely unstoppable. Even as they're struck with blindness, it doesn't say they turn and scatter and they turn and run or they start groping for the exit. It says now they're growing tired looking for the door to get in. The wickedness, as is described of this city, 
is coming to no end in and of itself. Something has to come to intervene the wickedness. And it says in verse 12, Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever else you have in the city, take them and get them out of this place. This is their their, their mission is to be messengers of coming wrath on wickedness, which is good. Just wrath. And also, a, what we would call an evangelistic message to say, but there is a way of escape, which is also good. And the message always comes together. Because it says in verse 13, for we are going to destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown gro- so great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So they're, they're coming with a, a mission to deal with wickedness, but also a, an invitation of the mercy of God. We are coming to destroy it, but please, before that happens, for you and your household, the representation of the household of faith, please take our word and find your way away from the wrath. And we'll come to that as we try to apply this to our own lives But it says in verse 14, so Lot went out and spoke to his son-in-laws who had married his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his son-in-laws, he seemed to be joking. When the morning dawned, which is now the beginning of the second act, everything we've read so far is really a picture of the darkness of this city. And now we are going to see the work of God, not only sending messengers to warn people, but also destruction to, to deliver judgment. Starting in verse 15, it says, now morning comes. And in the light, we will see the work of God, representing the light of God in his presence or in his, in his kingdom, representing the light that, that, that breaks forth out of the darkness. And it says in verse 15, when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out, and they set him outside of the city. Within the Lord's just and righteous punishment of wickedness, there is the Lord's mercy that will come sometimes forcefully to bring the elect of God, the chosen of God, those that God has heard the cry and have the seed of faith, and he will bring them to a place of safety. And it says in verse 17, so it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed. And then it says that Lot said to them, Please know, my lords, indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me, by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. So now this city is near enough to flee, and it's little. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall be saved. And he said to them, see, I have favored you concerning this thing also, and that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. In other words, go your way. You've found favor. You have found grace. Where you want to go, you will be able to go. Hurry, escape, therefore, I cannot do anything 
until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen up the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. And he overthrew the cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the city, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abram went early, Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which went up like smoke of the furnace. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of, of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelled. Does the Bible really say this? <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> we just read it. <laughs> and in this, I believe there is something that we grasp from this that will give us an invitation and hope for what God has planned for this generation. There is in this generation a picture of the city of darkness and the city of light. And there is a tug of war between the two. And there is messengers coming to take us by the hand, to place us underneath the mercy seat of God. And how do we get there? And why don't we get there? And so now we look back at the overlay of the three things we, we said we would look for. There are three temptations that are, that are unfolding before us that we cannot tame. We can't say that Genesis chapter 19 is a study of history and thank God that history is off the map. Because these temptations will face us as we answer the question, what does it look like for us to live for the gospel at all costs? And these temptations wait for you. And the city that we live in, the city of darkness in this generation, it cries out with the temptations that push against the kingdom of God. And so what are they? First, uh, let's review one of the most glaring parts of this story. As we find Lot offering protection for the visitors of this city, the messengers that were sent to make a survey and eventually deliver the wrath. And it says that as he comes into their house, they called Lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we may know them. This was not a one or two person mob. This was the heart of the city on display. That they went after what they wanted. And the temptation that we review for the day and age that we live in is the temptation to say to those of us interacting with the city of darkness, which is all of us, and the city cries out and says, do whatever you want. If you want sexual perversion, then do that. And that is a, this is one of the ways this this heart of doing whatever you want comes out. And it still comes out in that way. Sexual perversion is one of the ways culture says, do what you want. It's not the only way, of course. We live in a, a, a culture that says to us, do what you want, and never mind with the rigidness of this narrow way of religion that you think is a better way. And in many ways, we're deconstructing everything that we have set up by God's grace to give us any sort of markers towards his will. And the culture says, do what you want with your body, 
do what you want with your money. Make a lot of it and spend it how you want. Do what you want with your time. Do what you want with your relationships. And we live in a culture that says, do whatever you want. And you come in here. And even as I preach from the authority of God's, God's word, some of you live in a worldview that says, I do what I want with the word of God. Does the word of God have the authority to speak over your life, whether you like it or not? Or am I standing here offering some of you good advice? Am I standing here offering some of you a picture of the God of glory who created the heavens and the universe, and he made you with a specific time and place in history that he chose for you, nobody else? And he says, the narrow way leads to life. And you say, if I want it to, I take it or leave it. I listen to preaching, and then I do what I want. I read the Bible, then I do what I want. I worship God, and I worship other things. And this leads us to the second temptation that we find unfolding before us, which is you do whatever you want, and you do not fear consequence. And we see that in the mob, don't we? They're blinded. The consequence of coming against the messengers of God is that you won't prevail the plan of God, that you won't thwart the will of God, that the gates of hell will not overcome the church of God. And yet in the consequences of your attempts to fight God, you're left with blindness, disappointment, a, a broken down of plans. And what do these people do? We're gonna, it, it's harder now. In, in our blindness, we grope for the door still. In our blindness, we come for the people that we want still. And you get another picture of it in the example of the warning that Lot offers to his son-in-laws. He says, we must escape. He urges them as he was urged by the messengers. And what do they say? To the son-in-laws of Lot, it seemed that he was joking. <laughs> Welcome to our world. I'm a pastor, so I know full well that the culture looks at me and they superimpose clown shoes on my feet. <laughs> they think I'm joking. When I talk about a God who created, a God that is personal, a God who has breathed life into humanity, that one day you will meet face to face to give an account of how you responded to the message, I'm wearing clown shoes. When I talk about the narrow way, the rejection of sin, the authority of God's word, the culture says, you must be joking. Haven't you read the science and the philosophy of our day? Don't you know how outdated your message is? That sin is something that is destructive, that I need a savior, that that savior's name is Jesus Christ. He really lived and he really died and he really rose again. Do you know how crazy we sound to be fools for Christ? The Bible says you're a fool for Christ, and sometimes don't we know it? And sometimes don't we get the reminder that they listen to the warning. And there is a warning built into this this morning, that if you don't treat the word of God with authority, and you don't listen to the message of God with heart, hearts to obey, ears to hear, that you will be part of the destruction of the unfolding of this world. And yet some of you, undoubtedly think it's a joke. It's like a good idea. It's like 
good for the kids maybe to have an uplifting Sunday school message. The songs are great, I guess. But I'm going to do whatever I want, and I do not fear the consequences of this God that I might be offending this morning. And this unfolds into the third temptation. It's not only do whatever you want and don't fear the consequences. It also comes as sin always comes. And compromise always comes with a little whisper that says, do a little bit more. This really is a message about compromise. We see in the life of Lot a number of small compromises, compromises leading him to this position in his life. We're first introduced to the, 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 the picture of Lot's engagement with Sodom and Gomorrah when he first chooses just to dwell in the land of plenty, even though the warning was that it was a land of wickedness. And he pitched his tent towards Sodom as a way just to get a good view, really. Because what, what's nicer than living in the country but looking down on those nice city lights? And then it says in the beginning of the chapter that he now dwells in the gate of the city. Not only geographically closer, but also the gate of the city representing some sort of engagement with the government of the city. That those who dwelled in the gate had a role in the governing of the city. And then it says, as he pleads with those at his doors, he says, brethren, please. Now calling his family those who live in the city of Sodom. And finally, we get an example of doing just a little bit more as Lot himself receives the warning that God's justice is on its way. It says here in verse 16 that while he lingered, the angels took his hand. Lot, you and your whole family need to leave. Got it. I'll get right on it eventually. (laughs) And isn't that's something we can relate to in the temptations of our life. Lot's bed was probably comfortable. Lot's pantry was probably full. Lot had the position of uh, uh, someone well-known in the city. And the call to leave was a call that was death or life, and yet he lingers. Because the third temptation is to do just a little bit more in the engagement with culture. And as we think of this, not just on an individual level, but on the scale of the church engaging with the culture that we live in, it's, it's apparent to me, as someone who is a pastor at a church, that you cannot make compromise with the culture and think that it will sometimes or some way end. You know, if we could just be, if we could find some theological gray area to bring people in without offending them, and, and just be a little bit more progressive than authoritative, then, then maybe we could stop there and find this neutral ground with the world. There is no such thing as progressive Christianity that is not progressing towards Christ. If your progression, and you call progressive Christianity, you're progressing towards culture, you're progressing towards death as a church and as a believer. And you can survey this and not take my word for it and watch the fate of churches that make compromise after compromise to be more appealing to the world and less fearful of God. And you will see that they slowly go towards death. And you want to know where the church thrives? The church thrives where believers make a stand on the word of God. 
where believers say, this is the line that, draw, that God has drawn for us to stand for his glory, for his good works, for the power of his love, for the movement of his spirit, and we don't cross it no matter what age we live in. Where you find that church, you find a growing church because the spirit of the Lord is there. And where you find that church, you find disciples and growing believers because you cannot make compromises and hope they end at some sort of neutral ground. The culture always wants a little bit more. So does sin. And so does anything that takes you away from God. You don't get to make one or two compromises. You either stand firm in the faith towards the power and the glory of God, or you completely go away little by little by little. So these are the three temptations. Do whatever you want, don't fear the consequences, and do a little bit more. And now we see in this the two failures to stand up against those, those, those temptations. And I want to share them with you now as we look at, again, a, an overview of Genesis chapter 19 is in, into how we got towards destruction. I want to share with you two failures that were actually shared with me this week. A number of uh, pastors and I engaged in a conference digitally, which was interesting. It was a digital conference for church leaders. And one of the church leaders was, was, was really speaking into how to navigate the day and age we live in as leaders. And the conference was full of all sorts of cultural questions. Masks, no masks, vaccines, no vaccines, uh, church open, church closed, church digital, church, church influence, all things that we can wrestle with. And one of them said, as a leader, where do we lose track? Two failures. There is the failure of nerve, and there is the failure of heart. As these three temptations unfold before you, you will find yourself in two different ways that you succumb to the temptation. It will be in a failure of nerve and a failure of heart. Let me share them with you very quickly. Failure of nerve says this. It is the caving into the pressure and anxiety of the group to return to the status quo. A failure of nerve is when you find yourself with the question of the hour. How do I live for the gospel no matter what? And then you realize that these temptations will unfold before you and there is a caving into the pressure. The pressure put against you by a group of people and by the circumstances of the moment. There are three ways that failure of nerve will unfold. Three circumstances that will bring it about. And I find them all throughout the story of Genesis 19. Let me share them with you. One, a change in momentum. this pressure that buckles you in the face of temptation. And one of the ways that that failure will come is when momentum totally shifts in your life. Think about the example of Lot. We, we, we get introduced to Lot and he's rolling. Why does Lot need to pitch his tent in Sodom? Because when he was hanging out with Abram, there was so much plenty. There was so much livestock. There were so many herdsmen or people working at their companies that they had to find new land. That's really strong momentum in life. He had too much wealth. And then, he, and then talk about momentum, he got to the pick of the litter. You, you look out, Abram says to Lot, you go where you want to go, you pick the best land. I mean, isn't that kind of peak life right there, where your life is rolling, your business is rolling, your family's blessing you, you find yourself in the best spot of land overlooking a city? And yet the story completely turns on its head by the end. Look what it says in verse 30. The, 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 the life of Lot has taken such a twist towards the opposite of good momentum. It says in verse 30, Then Lot went up of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains 
with his two daughters. He was afraid to dwell in Zoar, and his two daughters and him lived in a cave. So a cave is probably a hard place to have tons of livestock and herdsmen and wealth and riches. His life has taken a total 180. And in the 180s of life, it is when your life is going so well and then something comes in and, and completely turns it the other way, the nerves are tested. How many of us have felt the shift of momentum in the last couple years? Just as a church, even. You know, you think back a couple years ago, we're busting at the seams. We're the fastest growing city in America. People are coming. People are giving. We have ideas, and people are like, let's do it. And a total shift in momentum comes overnight. We're all scattered, and I'm preaching to a camera. And as a leader, there is an absolute test of the nerve when the momentum shifts. And it happens in your life. And it, it, and it happens in ways that you don't like at all. Life is rolling. Your kids are listening to you. Your business is banging. And inevitably, because you're not in heaven yet, something will happen in this life, whether it is sickness or finances or the loss of a friend or the, the, the hormones of a teenager that will shift your momentum overnight. And the question is, when these temptations unfold before you, what kind of nerve do you have in the shifting momentum of life? The second failure of nerve is dominant personalities. Boy, don't we know that one from the story of Genesis chapter 19. It's a mob rule in Genesis chapter 19. Dominant personalities, so dominant that they come one and all to the home of Lot and break down the door. Lot's like holding them back. The only thing that stops them is the intervention of the power of God to miraculously blind them. He said, you can't judge us. We're going to do worse to you than what we even planned. And the failure of nerve can kick in. As Lot has this coming at him, what happens? He says, hey, I don't know quite what to do, but you guys are dominating my thought process and my, and my fear life so hard. Just take my daughters. I would say that's a failure of nerve. And as a church leader, I feel it. The dominant personalities that live in our culture, both the dark culture and the church culture. When I came to Genesis chapter 19, I couldn't help but think of the dominant personalities that do not want to hear a message about sin. There's dominant personalities that dominate against the word of God, against the authority of God, uh, against the power of God to allow his design to be preached. And his design has authority over sexuality. His design has authority over the way that we treat each other and, and live our lives and obey authority. And there's dominant personalities in and out that the preacher has to think about every message. And that's why when I came to this, I thought, didn't we already preach it on Wednesday? I'm trying to do the mental gymnastics to avoid the conversation. And you think about the last year, how many of us have felt the pressure of the mob to point us in one certain direction or another. And it can absolutely turn into a buckling of the pressure from the failure of the nerve to allow temptation to overtake us. And then finally, it says an uncertain future. When your nerves are tested, remember failure of nerves, simply the, the lack of courage to continue the mission. 
and I'm preaching to you now in the midst of an uncertain future for the church, for the country, for your families, for your children. What's going to unfold? I don't know. Now look at the example of Lot as he's given the mercy of God to find escape, to find, to find the grace of God, to get him out, out from underneath the wrath of God. They say, go to the mountains, and what does Lot say? He says, I, I'm thankful that I found favor in your sight. You've increased your mercy. But I can't go to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me. It's like, bro, Lot, <laughs> you just had a mob trying to murder you. God sent messengers to spare you. He set aside a place for you to go so that you wouldn't be killed. And yet in the uncertainty of the hills, in the uncertainty of the moment, he's paralyzed. Complete failure of nerve. And how many of us feel it? The call of God on your life is a call to abandon your life. Anyone who desires to save his life will lose it. But if you lose your life, go to the mountains Come with me across the Red Sea into, in many ways, the wilderness now as we await for the the, the future promised land. I don't know, Lord. As crazy as this world is, at least it's certain, but it's not. But the uncertain future causes you to buckle and your nerves fail you and temptation overtakes you. And then we come to failure of heart. Failure of heart stated says the emotional cutoff that occurs when discouragement leads to the lack of love for God and people. And this is why I'm so passionate about these two failures as a pastor, as believers. You want to think about how we fail to answer the call to live for the gospel at all costs? Here's your answer. Your heart has failed you. You once had a heart for God that received his unconditional love for you and you responded with worship and open hands and you looked around and you said, all I want to do is be a vessel for you, God. I'll love my enemies. I'll forgive those who crushed me. But you know what happens over time, inevitably, is we lose heart. So the Bible is full of this one simple phrase that says, take heart. Don't give up. Don't stop loving me. Return to your first love. And and, and that's why we look at the end of the the story of Lot in Genesis chapter 19. And and a man who once had hundreds of people under his care, caring for the things that God gave him. After a series of decisions that led him into failure of nerve, he has a failure of heart so radical that he would rather live in a cave than a small town. I don't want to be around people anymore. I'm over it. Man, that's such a danger for all of us. Such a danger for those who are called to be leaders of the gospel in business, in family, in church. The failure of heart, you've lost the love for people. It creeps into all of us. It's like parenting. We hold that baby in our arms and we think, I will die for you. And then they grow up a little bit. And they get on your nerves, and you're like, how many years until they're out of the house? (laughs) Leaders, pastors, where are you, pastors? If you have a failure of heart, your ministry will die. If you lose your love for God and your love for people, you are walking towards temptation that will overtake you. 
believer. It's like how many of us here have experienced that weary feeling of being in church so long that you actually just kind of want to come listen to the message and never talk to somebody. And maybe not even that. It's like, I, I don't even know if I want to go to church anymore. I'm, I'm just so tired of this. People hurt me. They break me. The church disappoints me. And so in the light of these temptations, we have failure that walks us towards buckling under the pressure. So we have three temptations, two failures, one solution. How do we find a message of hope in Genesis chapter 19? Well, it's there. And it's a message of hope for me as your pastor that, that my nerves wouldn't buckle under the pressure of the mob, that my love wouldn't be lost and now I'm just here because it's my job. It's the hope for you as a believer in this dark world awaiting for the dawn of God to not lose heart, to not give in to the temptations of the world, to make these compromises that will never end. There's one solution. And before we get the direct answer, let's get the, let's get the preview of it. It says in verse 29, it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham. It takes me a second as I'm studying for this. God remembered Abraham. Abraham wasn't even there. Isn't this a story about Lot and his family and how God remembered them and, and pulled them out of the city to get them into the mercy? It is because of Abraham. Genesis chapter 18. Abraham pleads with God. God, you wouldn't destroy the righteous in your judgment. And then he has that amazing moment where he is reflecting the mercy of God as he talks to God and says, 50, if we can find 50, you'll spare them. Yep. Maybe we should do 45. 50 is a little bit high. And eventually they get all the way down to 10, and yet you add up the number and we don't even have 10. So who do we have? God remembered Abraham. God remembered that there was one who still lived for faith in God that had mercy, in God that was both just and the justifier somehow of those who believed in him. And because God remembered Abraham, God gave Abraham's family a picture of saving grace under the banner of the righteous. And so now we have one solution. Because when I think about the destruction of the, the world that we live in, it's coming. Parts of you really wants it to come. The parts that you don't really struggle with, you can't wait for the justice of God to fall down on. And it will. We, we are created in the, in, the, in the image of this just God, and we all feel justice for certain things. Here's the problem, though. God's justice is so rich and so pure that it will cover all of us for reasons that we don't fully want to accept or admit about our own lives, which means that if we were pleading with God right now and we said, if this world just had 50 righteous people, God, couldn't we do something to get those 50 to safety? You say, yeah. Maybe 50 is a little high. 45, 30, 20, 10. What if this world just had one? And that's the solution. Because God so loved the world, he actually sent his son to be one righteous person in the world. The only righteous person that ever lived. He who knew no sin becomes sin, stands underneath the fire and the brimstone of the cross. And because God remembers that moment, 
He says, anyone who's in that family, I spare. If you're in the family of Christ, anyone who is in Christ, there's no condemnation. So the solution isn't novel. It's not exciting. We, we craft these sermons to, to engage. Three temptations, two failures, one solution. It's like, okay, this is going to be, what's the solution? What's the 21st century solution? What's the technique for, for winning this culture back to Christ? Well, is there a technology we can download? Is there a map or a book or a strategy? It's like, nope. The one solution is the one righteous king, and that is Christ. So here it is, church. Here's what we need. In the face of the temptations that unfold, in the face of the failures that you relate to, you need the power of the Spirit of God to invade your life. We talk about his presence as if it's three, three songs on a Sunday. We're talking about the spirit of God overwhelming your life so that the same spirit that was in Christ raising him from the grave isn't just an Easter message. It's the same spirit of Christ that lives in you, that you walk in daily, that when the failure of the nerve and the heart comes, it's not your spirit that has to fight the battle. And I think about this prayer because now it's like the million-dollar question. I want the spirit. Paul prays this prayer. You'll you hear it. Hang out at church. You're going to hear Ephesians 3, but it's really important. He says, so that you wouldn't lose heart, I pray this, that God would strengthen your inner man so that you would know his love. His love is so powerful against temptation. His love is so powerful in, in the failure of nerve and the failure of heart that he never fell into that the prayer is simply, can you just get me ready for that love? Can you just strengthen me in all of the weakness of my life that fails all the time, that comes in here after a long week of failure of nerve and failure of heart and temptation coming at me? Can I just have the strength to accept the reality that God loves me? That's the reality of that prayer. And once you realize the love of God, his spirit indwelling in you is the power to walk from the darkness into the light. You have the one solution. It's the spiritual power of God in his people. It's not a sermon. It's not the answer. It's that you, some of you for, for real this day, would be overwhelmed by his spirit. And you know what his spirit has the power to do? Jesus never had a failure of nerve. And the gospel's full of changing momentum dominant people in uncertain circumstances. And as the momentum shifts, he never gave in. The momentum shifts to who is this guy? To take a crown, you're the king. To no, you're not, we hate you. And in all of those things, he stayed true to the will of God to march towards the cross. Jesus never gave in to the mob. Jesus never gave in to the fear of an uncertain future. In the uncertainty of the cross, as we have the call, all of us believers, to pick up our cross, and you think, what does that mean? I don't know if I can handle the mountains. Jesus says, nevertheless, not my will, but the will of God. And for the joy set before him on the other side of suffering, he endures the cross. And Jesus never had a failure of heart. Jesus never stopped loving you. Yet while you were still a sinner, an enemy of God, a, a, a citizen of Sodom. 
he dies on the cross and he yells to those there and to anyone who would hear, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's underneath the wrath, but he has not stopped loving you and he hasn't stopped loving the Father. And that is the solution. As temptation unfolds and your failures scream inside of you, you become the example of Christ to this world. And that's the mission we're on. The future of the church is safe because God is raising up little examples of Jesus to invade the darkness, to pull people out, to bring them under the grace and the mercy because God remembers Christ and anyone who is in him. So we end now. I'll first end by talking to some of you who maybe came here hoping for a lighthearted sermon. Thanks for not leaving. <laughs> and I would really be remiss to, to not offer an invitation to you in this moment that we find in Genesis chapter 19. There is a messenger who comes in and he gives a warning. And he says, this is the way of escape. Because this city, Sodom, is going to be destroyed. So uh, allow me to bring that message to you now. This is going to be destroyed. I'm not talking about the people of God. I'm talking about the stuff. You can be a student of history. Kingdoms and empires, they rise and they fall, all of them. You can be a student of culture because culture will tell you what is in vogue and then it changes its mind and it is the wind and the wave pushing you. And if you buy stock in today's culture, you better sell it next year. It's not going to save you. And ultimately, you are not going to last. The Bible says you've appointed, been appointed once to die. Your body is perishing. The, the little body that you dwell in now is not going to be around forever. And after you die, it says, then comes judgment. Then comes an opportunity for you to fall underneath the mercy of God or to remain under the wrath of God. So the invitation for some of you who have maybe heard it, maybe you haven't, is to answer this with one solution. God, I want to have the spirit of Christ in me so that when my day comes to experience your judgment firsthand, I say, I am in Christ, and there will be no condemnation. And that's a simple request as we worship this song. For the rest of us, may you be strengthened to be invaded by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You evil fathers know how to give a good gift to your children. How much more does God know how to give you his spirit to those who ask. Stop fighting the battle without the spirit. Stop going to church and not obeying the word. And be revived by the grace and mercy of God.